Dr. James Kennedy was a pastor in Florida, a pretty good-sized church, and he said when we die and we get to heaven and we stand at the entrance, God will ask us two questions. The first one is this, is why should I let you into my heaven? And the second is what you do with my son and the gifts that I gave you to use for him. And we at Crossroads, I think there's going to be another one added. Did you take life development? <laughs> so that's coming up this week. And some of you have signed. If you haven't take that, uh, taken that, you, you really do. And I guess it, it's a fact that it, it's to help you and to help you understand some things of what God wants in your life. We always say, man, you know what? I, I don't know what God wants me to do, but... In this process, in these classes, hopefully that it'll help to bring it in a little closer to you. What warms your heart? That's a, God has a sense of humor that uh, a few weeks ago when I put this message together that this was the title. I, we didn't realize it'd be like this today. On the day that Jesus rose from the dead, on that glorious resurrection day, Jesus in his glorified body appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't recognize him. And as they walked, he explained the things concerning himself from Moses and all the prophets. And as a result, their whole outlook was changed. Later, they declared in Luke 24, 20, 32. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts feel strangely warm as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Does the word of God warm your heart? Does it ever? Do you ever have times in your daily existence when you pick this up and you read it and you feel a strange warmness? Boy, I hope so. I am sad for you if you don't. It is, it is the encouragement. It is all the things that God does for us. He brings it home. When we do that, there has to be a time when our, our hearts are warm. That same evening in the upper room, Jesus appeared to the gathered disciples and said this in verse 44 of that same chapter. When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me by Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must all come true. And then he opened their minds to understand these many scriptures. Jesus wants to open up our minds that through the power of the Holy Spirit that we might understand this as the scripture comes to us. Jesus Christ is a scarlet thread that that starts in Genesis, weaves itself through this tapestry of the Bible, explaining the redemption plan to mankind from the book of beginnings, which is Genesis, to Revelation, which is the end of days on this earth. Then in Luke 24, 44, he talked all about all the things that were written about him in the Old Testament. He specifically mentioned the Psalms. Jesus is saying, my name about me, the story about me is in the Psalms. There are 16 Psalms that speak of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're called Messianic Psalms because they speak of, of Jesus as the Messiah. Today, I want to look at Psalm 2. And as I read this, think about our world and what's going on around us. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from this slavery. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, my holy city. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son, or he will become angry, and you will be destroyed in the midst of your pursuits. For his anger can flare up in an instant. But what joy for all who find protection in him. Attention has been drawn to the fact that the first psalm begins with a beatitude and the second ends with a beatitude. So together they form this introduction into all the rest of the psalm. In the first psalm, Jesus is a happy man, occupied with a book, a tree, and a river. In the second, he is God's king, destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So the, the common theme in both these psalms is God's beloved son, in spite of the anarchy and wickedness in our world today. And one day he will occupy the throne of world dominion. I think it's hard for us to understand that sometimes as we see life from our perspective at this point in time in 2016. That one day when that sun comes up in the east, that Jesus Christ himself in his glorified body will be sitting on a throne on Mount Moriah in Israel. That's, that's hard sometimes because I, I, I don't think in the back of our minds we think it's going to happen in our lifetime, but we don't know that. The second psalm is quoted seven times in the New Testament, twice in Acts, chapter 4 and 13, twice in Hebrews, chapter 1 and 5, three times in Revelation, chapter 2 and 12 and 19. All of these references are applied to the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, giving us the authority to say that these are Messianic psalms. Psalm 2 has 12 verses divided into four sections, three sections each. There are four speakers, one in each section. Section 1, the voice of rebellion, man in revolt, verses 1 and 3. 2, the reply of Jehovah, God in his wrath, verses 4 through 6. 3, the revelation of the Son, verses 7 through 9. And 4, the Spirit's call to reconciliation, verses 10 and 11. This is the Holy Spirit. Trinity's answer to the anarchy of man. Voice of rebellion, man in revolt. Section one, why do the nations rage? Just think about that for a minute. In our world right now today, is there raging going on somewhere around the world? Why do people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from this slavery. It sounds like the children of Israel on their journey and their 40 years, which 11-day trip took 40 years, that, man, God, we're tired of you telling us what to do. We're tired of eating this manna, even though you feed us and we don't have to do squat. Why don't we get something else? Why don't we get some meat? So he sends all these quails and all this story. But I try to, to, to see in my own life, and am I a whiner and a complainer like that? Of all the good things that God does for me, do I ever whine and complain? Free ourselves from this slavery. I do believe that's why a lot of people don't come to church. They don't want to be told what to do. Even though it's God that's doing the telling, 
Why come and feel bad, feel guilty, feel convicted? Instead of confessing your sin and getting right with God, they, people folk turn their back and, and walk away. And say, man, we're going to free ourselves from this slavery. There's nobody going to tell me what to do. Peter applies these words from Psalm 2 to the crucifixion in Acts 4, 27 and 28. That is what has happened here in this city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles and the people of Israel all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you appointed. In fact, everything they did occurred according to your eternal will and plan. All in the plan. It's a prophetic application. Here we have a fourfold coalition power united against God and his Christ. First, united nations. Second, people, the nation of Israel. Thirdly, Organized government represented by Herod, and finally, judicial power represented by Pontius Pilate. The words take counsel and set themselves indicate the deliberate adoption of a policy, passing of a resolution. And what a vain endeavor that is to try to overthrow God, to overthrow law and order. The underwriting of the slogan that Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, coined, it's God is tot in German, but what it says is God is dead. Some of you in college has maybe heard that in a class. Maybe you've heard it from a philosophy professor. I don't know, but it's there. I've heard it. There is no God. I could go on and on about that and some of the things that I've heard from people in learned places. But you see what this is all coming down to. The law of God in the Bible and all rules concerning morals and marriage are to be rejected. We're not going to listen to these anymore. You can take your Judeo-Christian outlook and stick it. I've had people almost say that to me. I'm free. You're not going to tell me. I'm going to do what I want when I want. And I don't care who gets hurt or what's destroyed in the process because I am the center of my universe. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's where this is coming from in these first verses. Man is the maker of his own destiny, and situational ethics is to be the rule of life. There are no absolutes. Do and say whatever it feels like in that moment, it's going to be fine. All the chains are to be thrown away, and modern man is to be liberated from all restraint. The motto being... God, I shake my fist in your face, and you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want, when I want to do it, no restraints. Are there any indication of that in America? Are there any indicators? What will happen when God is taken out of every facet of humanity? It starts in the home where the child instead of the parent rules. It continues in the school where it's illegal in many places to, zip, to discipline with a paddle. It's thought to be barbaric. <laughs> man, oh man, I've had a lot of barbaric licks on me. You know what I'm saying? Where evolution and secular theories are taught as pure fact by teachers and professors who mock God. Praise God for the teachers that we have in Crossroads that know Christ and represent him in the classroom. I'm, I'm going to give them a hand. That's a big deal in this world. And that's where you want them to be. It's my opinion. It is increased in the social arena 
where the gay agenda has had a tremendous impact on American culture. I don't know whether you agree with it or not. That's a statement of fact. I love those folks, but I'm never going to agree with them. Abortion, the murder of babies, is law legal. Then it reaches into the spheres of government, sex scandals, graft, corruption, from the policeman on the street to the judge on the bench penetrating into the highest echelons of government. If these things that are happening now take place while the Holy Spirit and the church is here in culture as restrainers, what will happen when they are removed? Just let that soak in a minute. No Holy Spirit, no godliness, no church. I, I think about hurricanes and floods and all this is happening. Faith-based organizations are the first to respond. They are the majority that are there helping people. That'll all be gone. Taken off the face of the earth. It's gone. I don't, I don't know if we can, we can grasp that. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, it talks about the future. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. So, in this present world, the world of the Thessalonians and the world today, two events are happening simultaneously. First, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, and I think most of us can see that. It may not be clearly seen for what it is, but the work of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, what he will do is already going on. It's seeping into our culture in every facet, actually. Secret means something hidden behind the scenes, but something God will reveal. Lawlessness is the hidden, subtle, underlying force from which all sin springs. Second, even though this power is working, so is the one who is restraining it. God is on the throne. God is working. Civilization still has a modicum of decency through law enforcement, education, science, and reason. And although we are horrified by the criminal acts, the world has yet to see the real horror of complete lawlessness. This will happen, as the scripture says, when the one who now holds it back is taken out of the way, which is the Holy Spirit will be removed from the earth. I think we can grasp it a little bit, maybe in our own lives, because we all have old natures, and it's that old nature that loves the mud. That, come on, let's, let's, let's be honest here this morning. The majority of us, we, we like sand. We, we don't mind going back there sometimes because we got this idea that if I go in this giant mud puddle in this mud hole and get covered completely from head to toe with thick, nasty, stinking mud that my Bible tells me that when I crawl up out of that mud, I can go to my God and I can confess and Jesus will wash me with his blood and set me back on his lap. That's cheap grace, but that's how we live, majority of us. But here's the problem, my friends. While we are in this quagmire of mud, we are creating consequences. I don't know what your mud hole is. It might be drinking a half a case of beer every other day. It might be smoking joints or running a line of dust. I don't know. Or doing meth. It doesn't matter what it is. God will forgive you, but you are causing damage when you do that 
to your body, and to those around you. If you are having an adulterous affair, you are in danger of destroying your complete family as those ripples of sin go out. Adultery doesn't just affect the two people involved. It affects spouses and kids and churches and communities. I can go on and on and get on a soapbox here, but that is the problem with being in the mud. God comes back and he forgives us. Now, we think about that. What keeps us on the straight and level, it's that Holy Spirit within us. So picture this in your mind, a world with no Holy Spirit, no restraint, everybody's old nature, full-blown and acting out whatever they want when they want. I can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. So we get a foretaste as we look at history through events and evil rulers and dictators. In 1798, the French Revolution introduced to the guillotine. 1917 was the Bolshevik Revolution, the rise of communism. Early 30s and 40s, Adolf Hitler, killer of over 6 million Jews and 5 million of non-Jews. In that same period, another maniac, Joseph Stalin, responsible for over 40 million Russian deaths if you count war dead. He killed 13 million people called kulaks that were farmers because he wanted their land. He would eradicate whole villages. Mao Zedong in China, Fidel Castro in Cuba, Nikolai Ceausescu in Romania, Kim L. Young, Korea. The list goes on and on with the likes of these men who unleashed evil in their people. Slobodan Milosevic, Serbia, Idi Amin Dada in Uganda, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, Mabutu Sensei Siko in Zaire, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Francois Devalier, Papa Doc, had a son named Baby Doc, took over and was a worse ruler than him, had a hit squad called Tantan Makuts that would kill people, burn people's houses down, on and on and on. Augusto Pinochet in Chile, Pol Pot in Cambodia. All these men fit the following pure evil criteria, and it's this. They kill mercilessly using a warped ideology to justify their crimes. They suppress their own people, doing so far as to torture them, going so far as to torture them. They had a major negative impact on their own country's history, which spread to the rest of the world. They amassed a personal wealth while keeping many of their own people in poverty. This is just a small talk, taste of what it will be like. Franklin Graham tells this story that Diane just read it to me. New Year's Eve, Cologne, Germany. A thousand, some refugees that they had taken in to help. A thousand men went into this square in Cologne, Germany and kind of surrounded the place and accosted and robbed and raped and assaulted around 106 women. No restraint. Nobody stopped them, you see. Our world will be like that. It, it's, hard. it's hard for me to, to even think about that. I can I could go on and on and on about that all morning. But the second psalm points toward the day that a satanic trinity, you know, we got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's a satanic trinity, the two wild beasts of Revelation 13, backed by the devil himself, will proclaim this decree, prohibiting the worship of God and his Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13, Revelation 12. Those that refuse to obey or to carry his mark, the mark of the beast, you've heard it, and to worship the image of the man of sin will be executed. And this will be the climax of the work of the United Nations and the fulfillment of of the first section of this psalm. Section two, the reply of Almighty God. So we've got that first section. 
Now we got the second section, the section, the reply of Almighty God. First one was about the anarchy of man saying, God, we're not going to listen to you. Here's God's response, verse 4. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, my holy city. It's a terrible omen when God laughs. The very idea that puny man can defy the one who holds the entire universe in his palm. Weapons of mass destruction, nuclear warheads and laser beams mean nothing to God. He knows all their secrets, their plans, and more. The word wrath or anger in the book of Revelation is a technical term indicating the final series of judgments in the great tribulation. And these are going to come upon this earth. The sealed judgments are those that men bring on themselves by their own sin and folly, such as the building up of nuclear arms, which one day will be unleashed with a large portion of the world's population wiped out and material resources totally destroyed. The trumpet judgment are mainly satanic when men will reap the wages of sin. They are similar to the plagues of Egypt described in Exodus 5 and 12. But the last ones, the vials and the bowls judgments, are the wrath of God. The concentrated anger of the Almighty poured out on the seat of the beasts and their followers. We cannot grasp the wrath of God. That all this time, through grace, he's held back. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? When all the anger that God has because of sin comes pouring out on who's left on this globe. I, I, again, it's way beyond this. And the climax of all this is, for the Lord declares in verse 6, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, my holy city. This is God's purpose, and there's nothing on earth that hell can stop it. The point, this points forward to that day told by the prophets with de after dealing with the enemies of God at the Battle of Armageddon, he will enter the city at the head of his victorious army and occupy the hill and the house. Mount Moriah and the, hill, the house of David, he will be king priest on the throne of his father David, Psalm 24, 110, and Zechariah 6, 13. And God records this as it's already happened. It's going to happen. It's, it's, the victory is ours. Does it warm your heart at all? It, I'm secure in that. Regardless of what happens in the future, that this is going to be happening and I'm going to be with Jesus. Psalm 2, 7 through 9, section 3. The king proclaims the Lord decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. It's the greatest messianic passages in the Holy Bible. The eternal sonship of Christ is one of the most vital basic doctrines of the word. And that's what this, it's based on this doctrine. Another term used only by the Apostle John is the only begotten son. The monogenes in the Greek, John uses the term five times. King James Version says, I become your father. The statement in verse 7 is in two parts. Thou art my son. The decree is eternity past. That is an eternal relationship. And this day I have begotten thee. That's the Messianic quoted in three contexts in the New Testament, Acts 13, Hebrews 5, and Hebrews 1. So when God the Father brought his son, his first 
begotten Son into the world, he declared, let all the angels of God worship him. At his birth, he was saluted as son by the angel, Luke 135, by his father at his baptism, Luke 322, and at his transfiguration in Luke 935. So after sonship comes the heirship of the king, verses 8 and 9. God says, I give you the nations and the ends of the earth will be yours. You'll break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. So all these people that we mentioned that didn't want anything to do with God, they will, and these armies amass in, at Armageddon, which in 88 I was fortunate to be in Israel, and as you stand there in the plains of Jezreel or the valley of Megiddo, the valley of Esdraelon is where this battle's going to be fought, and it's about a 15 by 22 by 22 mile tri- triangle. And the scripture says that it's going to be filled, uh, bridled deep with blood of all these people. And then after Jesus' victory, he sets up his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years of peace, which is called the millennium. The shepherd's rod is symbolizing God's authority and rule to his people, but in his hand he will be holding a golden scepter. Section 4 is the last section, section 2, 10 through 12. Now, Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of your pursuits. For his anger can flare up in an instant. But what joy for all who find protection in him. This is the Spirit's call to reconciliation. It's an admonition. It's a calling that true wisdom finds itself in reconciliation. That true wisdom in mankind finds itself when we get to that point where we bow our hearts and our lives to Christ and actually ask for forgiveness and have him come into our hearts. Verse 12 said that, talks about submitting to God's royal son. King James Version says in verse 12, to kiss the son. The kiss in scripture is a symbol of various attitudes. Luke 7, 38 It's a sign of repentance. The poor woman who came into the house of Simon and stood behind Jesus did five things. She wept. She washed his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair of her head. She kissed his feet and she anointed them with the ointment. The tears of and the kiss were an evidence of true repentance because she was actually asking Christ to forgive her from her sins. And our Lord said, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. The kiss is also a token of forgiveness in Luke 15, 11 through 24. Prodigal son, doesn't this describe us all to a degree? I think, you know, I always say there's a little brat in all of us, but I think there's a lot of prodigal in most of us. And a lot of times in our lives, we just don't come back once. We come back over and over and over and over again. And what does the father do? Does he smack you? Does he leave scars on you? If he did, most of us would have busted noses and <laughs> around our eyes. or scars on our back, spiritual scars. That's my a picture of my God. <laughs> Eddie, you know, you, you messed up again. <laughs> Climb up here on my lap. I forgive you, but... Do you see what you're doing? Do you see the anguish? Do you see the pain that you cause yourself when you do this? And you know what? 
Sometimes it might be easier to me if he did whack me. Or like Jacob, touch me in the thigh where I was crippled. I'd remember it. But you know what he does? <laughs> Puts him loving arms around me and reaches down and gives me a kiss on the cheek. Try to do better. That's what he does. The kiss of forgiveness. It's interesting to note in this psalm that two words are used for son. In verse 7, it is B-E-N, Ben, but in verse 12, it is Bar. The first is the Jewish word, Benjamin. B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N, the Ben's on the front. The second is the Gentile word, Bar. And you see that in Barabbas. What's the difference? The first is his revelation to God as the son of his right hand. And the second is his relation to the Gentile powers referred to in this psalm. At the crucifixion, they cried, away with him. Give us B-A-R at us. It kind of stabs in the conscience. Judas gave Jesus the kiss of hypocrisy and treachery, but here the admonition is to kiss the son into contrition and repentance. I hope we'll be able to do that in heaven. Because I don't know about you, but I've got a lot to be thankful for. I've been forgiven a lot, and I'll continue to be forgiven. I hope we can just cool up to Jesus and give him a big hug and, and kiss him on the cheek. The psalm ends with the beatitude, blessed are all they that take refuge in him. Have you taken refuge in Christ? Is your heart ever warmed by God's word? If not, I pray that that changes, my friends. Or is it this, at this very moment, is your, is your heart cold? I have to admit to you, Back in the day, I drug myself into church Sunday after Sunday with a cold heart. And I'm talking freeze-dried. I'm talking cold as can be. And do you know why it was cold? Because I, I wasn't reading this. I wasn't listening. And I lived like hell all week. I did drugs on the railroad, and I, I drank quite a bit. I never ran women because I knew that if I ever caught up with me, I would be in a grave pushing up daisies. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the fact is, I was doing it. Sunday after Sunday, I would come with my family. And, and at the end of that service, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this or not. We don't have pews. But I'm saying I about wore the varnish. We always sit in the same place. You know how it is in church. You always sit in the same place. I about wore the varnish off those, those pews from gripping it. Because when it come down to the end, the Holy Spirit, was he had his finger on me. And I knew that I needed to repent and confess. Not, not Eddie. I was tough because I, I was hanging on to that pew, and I, I'd done that way too much. And it wasn't as bad when I went back to work and fell into my old habits, so to speak. It didn't work on me as bad. But praise God, there was one day that the old Holy Spirit, he pried them fingers off that pew and drugged me up there, almost kicking and screaming, but I knew that I didn't, needed to be there, and I repented, and God got a hold of my life, and 
I have to say, my friends, that my heart's a lot more warm and it's hardly ever cold anymore. And I, my prayer for you this morning is that whether it's warm or cold, if it's warm, that in this moment you are praising God for the blessings in your life and what he's done for you. And if it's cold, you need to be praying for God to show you how to make it warm again. Lord, life is tough. I wish that I could stand up here and paint everybody this rosy picture that we could live under a dome and never be touched by evil, that we'd never be touched with disease, that we'd never be touched with people doing stupid things in this world. But I can't promise that because I don't know your plan for us. But I can promise this, Lord, that as we take trust in you, as we come into your presence and give you our lives, give you our hearts, that regardless of what comes our way, you are going to strengthen us and you're going to lead us through it. And we will be victorious. So, Father, that's my prayer for all of us here this morning. We just be honest with you, whatever that might be. Lord, if people need you this morning, you knock on that heart's door that they might respond. They might come to this altar if they want to be showed how to come to you or to pray that prayer of repentance right where they sat, but nonetheless that they pray it. Help us, God, now to leave this place where we need to be with you. For we ask all these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.